I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take a big story from the news that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner at Multi Studio in Kansas City, and today I am joined by Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. Welcome back. Hey, Abby. So nice to chat with you. I as soon as you turned the recorder on, the train went by. Uh-huh. And it was really loud. Did you hear it? Could you? I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was our that was our train running through town. My office used to be right on the train tracks, so it was very loud. And now I'm two blocks off. So a little bit different vibe, but yeah, you got that. And I'm not in the studio today, which has got soundproofing and that kind of stuff. I'm out here because the computer in there wasn't working well. So you get the full uh, full brainerd experience today. Yeah, so many excuses, Chuck. Well, <laughs> <laughs> at least uh, the train is kind of on brand. So I think uh, on brand. we, we, yeah, we no, won't have I'm, to edit that out. <laughs> although it is probably bringing coal through town, so maybe not as... Uh, Maybe yeah. a few people who are like, trains, fossil fuels, which side do I go with? Nah, I just like yeah. the sound of the train running through town. I like the sound of it. I like the sound of trains a lot. It's, I love yeah. it. Um, so welcome back. Uh, I understand you've been gone for a couple of weeks traveling and you were in Hawaii. And- oh, yeah, it's, it's a rough <laughs> couple of weeks of traveling. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a really tough time. So it's good to have you back. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I've got a crazy month of October, but then things calm down. So it's yeah, all good. for the holiday season. Yeah. Um, okay, so the article that we are going to be covering is from the the Wall Street Journal by Conrad Pudsier, and it is entitled "The U.S. is Running Short of Land for Housing." So the basic thesis of this article is that land values and are in favorable locations are booming right now and landowners across the country are in some cases making extremely high returns on their long-term holdings so long as these conditions uh, that enable their land to support development. And these opportunities, according to the article, are very limited. So the U.S. is filled with a lot of open space, and you would think that we have all this open space. The fact that we have all this open space means we must have plenty of space for housing. But in order to support housing, land essentially needs to be positioned in a few different ways. And the article really outlines three major elements that lend to kind of its development potential. And the first one is that the land needs to be proximate to major metropolitan areas and jobs. So basically on the edge of a metro close to nearby jobs. The second is that it needs to be supported by public investments. So not only having some kind of highway access, but also local roads, water, sewer, that kind of thing. The third is that the land needs to have favorable land use restrictions. So recognizing that zoning regulations influence the value of land and many cities do not really enable housing stock and neighborhoods to respond to market pressures. So less supply of land with these conditions, according to the article, creates scarcity in the home building market 
And this scarcity is basically pushing up the cost of land on the edge of metropolitan areas. And that's further exasperating the housing crisis. One estimate that they that they show in this article says that 47% of U.S. home values is just the value of land. And the study that they cited said that that number was 20% in the early 1960s. So the rising value of land according to this article, is basically responsible for the surge in home values in recent decades. So uh, this is an interesting article. It's kind of interesting to think about this in terms of looking at the cost of land. I feel like we, we talk about the cost of a construction a lot and, you know, actually building a house and what that costs, but land dynamics are interesting. And I, I wanted just to start to pull out this narrative and this quote from the article that they that they offer, because I want to get your reaction to it. So they say land wasn't always so expensive until the second half of the 20th century. America's population was far more spread out, living where land was cheap. But as more people moved to a smaller number of cities with abundant office jobs, and municipalities passed stricter zoning codes that made it tougher to build houses, land prices and housing prices surged. And so they say that land values in Manhattan, for example, barely increased between the 1880s and the 1970s after adjusting for inflation. And between 1977 and 2019, they grew at an average annual rate of about 13%. So This is really kind of interesting to me, and I I wanted to share that with you because I wanted to get your reaction with how you juxtapose that with kind of the Strongtown's perspective of the history of cities and um, how how we got to where we are today, basically. I felt this article was so dumb. It was not even (laughs) wrong. I can't remember what the quote was like, that's so bad, it's not even wrong. I kind of felt like, what, what are we talking about? I almost felt like I was sitting in one of those meetings where the developer is in there going, uh, but land is so expensive and therefore we need, you know, one, more subsidy, two, loosening restrictions, three, tax subsidies, four, uh, a break on all of our utility fees, five. And I'm like, what? this development stinks in the first place. Like, why would we pile all that onto it? You at the very end had this question, specific question about land values and you talked about Manhattan. And I, I think we should draw a distinction between Manhattan and the rest of the country because in Manhattan, you actually have like the real dynamics of a place, right? If you are in uh, Manhattan, you literally have real estate that is not easily accessible, but yet there's a lot of people there. In other words, if you're going to live as the crow flies 20 miles out of Manhattan, is it is not just simply get in your car and drive to the middle of Manhattan. The way in Kansas City, if you live 20 miles out of Kansas City, you can get to the middle of town in like 25 minutes. In Manhattan, it's a, it's a, it's a two-hour trip. I mean, it's not a very quick trip if you're going to drive. And so what happens in Manhattan is you get – Land values, land values, not the building, the land, the land becomes way more valuable because there's lots of people there and it's, but it's not easily accessible by car. In other words, 
the land in the middle of Manhattan is not competing with the land 20 miles out of Manhattan for, for people. But if you go to Kansas City, the land in the downtown, like if there's a movie theater in the downtown of Kansas City and there's a movie theater 20 miles out, they're actually competing against each other because I can get to either one by car in like relative – if I live halfway in between, they're both equidistant in terms of car, Right. This idea that somehow we can extrapolate from data in Manhattan to the rest of the country is, is just silly. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. I want to point out one other thing, and then I'll, I'll you follow up. The whole article started out with this guy who paid 10 cents an acre for land and was holding on to the land then. And the, the article is there's a scarcity of land which anybody who has ever been outside of Manhattan knows is an absolute absurdity, right? Like the article is about Tampa and I'm like, go to Tampa. There's like a, in cities, there's an insane amount of empty, wasted space. Outside of cities, there's this vast amount of undeveloped land. What there isn't is land that people are ready to sell at that specific price. And I think we have to ask ourselves a question, like, why are they not ready to sell at that specific price, right? Assuming this is the development model, which you want, which again, I said, this article isn't even wrong because we don't want that development model anyway, but let's pretend that we did. Why aren't people willing to sell the land at that price? It's not because they're getting tons of money farming it. They're not. It's not that they're using it for, you know, hunting or recreation and they value it so much. No. It's that they bought it for 10 cents. It's now worth $50,000 an acre. They are on paper massively wealthy because they own this land. They're likely being taxed at like 1960s value. So they're probably paying like $50 a year in taxes. If I told you, Abby Kinney, I will give you an asset and that asset is going to appreciate 20% a year. You will have to pay a tiny holding fee off of that. Like, 0.01% of the total value every year in a holding fee, that would be your property taxes. But you can hold on to that for your entire life. And at the end of your life, it will be worth millions and millions of dollars. And then you can pass it on tax-free to your heirs. And by the way, the entire time you can borrow money against it, you can use it as equity in your other land deals. You can do. Why would you ever divest of that asset? You wouldn't. Yeah. You would just hold on to it. And yeah, so, there's no incentive to actually do anything with it. There's actually a huge disincentive to do anything with it. And so what happens is like twofold. One, all of this land gets taken off the market, right? Because of the soaring valuation. And it accelerates the valuation on the handful of places that are on the market. And so if you're interested in pursuing this development model, like if this is the development model that we think is good for America, which I think it's horrible for America. But if you think this is good for America, you're actually analyzing this wrong by saying there's a lack of land. What there is, is a serious misalignment of tax regulation, incentives, you know, speculative forces, uh, liquidity, all of this that is conspiring to artificially limit the amount of land that is for, available to be for sale for this development model. And I mean, not only is the article like not even delve into that at all, 
No. Um, <laughs> no. It, it is like a propaganda. The article is like a propaganda piece for developers. Like, look. Like the, home, the Home Builders Association. The Home Builders, <laughs> right. It's like, hey, you know, all this land so expensive. I'm like, no, no doubt, because we've yeah. created like the sweetest, most lucrative position we can for all the people that own it. Okay. So I feel like at least half of the people listening to this are probably screaming land value tax, talk about land value tax. And I have a question about that <laughs> because we've talked about, you know, how a land value tax would work in an urban environment and how that would influence some of the dynamics that are occurring where you don't want to incentivize people to hold on to vacant lots or let property fall apart. And and kind of the rationale in my mind has always been, well, that's a that that would be a tax that's justified because those parcels are supported by infrastructure. They are supported by public services. You know, and so to leave land fallow in a place where there's all of these services, all of these uh, pieces these systems of infrastructure is, you know, essentially stealing from the tax base. But in rural areas or on the edge of metropolitan areas where it's just vast open space and, you know, if you look at a place like Kansas City or like all of the Midwest and West, there's tons and tons and tons of land and it's not served by infrastructure. It's not, you know, really, you know, accessible. Would you suggest a land value tax model comprehensively, even for areas like that. Do you think that's a good idea? And if so, how would something like that be set up in a way that makes sense? So my short answer is no, I would not do that. I I think the, for me, I want cities to have a much expanded toolbox. And I think there's many different situations where different tax structures make a lot of sense. I always use the example, and it's an extreme example, but I use the example of like, if you lived in Istanbul, you should just have a sales tax for everything because all this trade is like flowing through the place. But if you live in Kansas City, or if you live in Tampa, or if you live in, in you know, central Minnesota, um, to me, the ideal tax with the ideal feedback loops would be a land tax within the municipality wherever you have, uh, particularly, I would not have anything in the municipality that didn't have municipal services. I mean, that's the whole thing is in the municipality, you're going to get municipal services and then you have a land tax. And if you're outside the municipality, you have a property tax. I think we can boil it down to, if we simplify it down, we simplify it to this. If you are on municipal services, if you are within the city, we need you to build. We have a cost of doing business and that cost needs to be assessed to your property. And then we need you to build. And so we don't want any disincentive for you to improve your property, sit on it, hold it, wait for, wait to be the last person with the biggest payoff. We don't want any artificial scarcity. There's a big public investment in your land. We want that investment to have a payoff for the community that's made this investment. Outside of the municipality, outside of that, there's no public investment. The public investment is really, really low. And the reality is, is we don't want uh, speculative land values out there. We don't want uh, to be, in a sense, an artificial raising of land in anticipation of an annexation or... Yeah, the next highway project. Yes. We want you to have low taxes uh, because you have low values because you're doing rural things like ag, right? Or, or like preserving open space, right? Like those are all 
low value uses that should result in low land values and low taxes. I think the interesting question becomes at the interface then. So let's say that we have this, this interface where here's the edge of the city, here's our land tax, uh, and we want to build, build, build there. And then here's outside the city where you've got a property tax, low value, low land. The developers can say, I'm going to pay a premium for that because I'm going to develop the property by getting it brought into the city. Okay. That's a development strategy. If you did that to me, two things would happen right away. One, uh, you would be assessed for all of the cost. You know, all like the of the infrastructure. Cost the yeah. Right? So yeah. bringing it into the city would not be bringing it into the city and then have the public run the utilities out to me, improve the roadway, do all that. No, 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 no. That's what, what that does is that inflates the pro- value of the property artificially. Again, we're back to square one here. What yes. you want is like, here's the a huge public of- subsidy. Huge public subsidy. Huge. Here's the cost <laughs> outside the city. You want to come in. Okay. Uh, your property is now going to be worth this much when you come in, but all of that is going to be because of the additional investment, which you have now paid for. We then switch you over to the land tax because now you're in the city. There's this investment. The public's interest uh, is in making sure that there's enough tax base here to sustain that investment. And you switch over to a land tax. And so your taxes are going to go up substantially the day you enter into the city, substantially go up 10 times, 20 times. And you're going to have to pay the cost of the infrastructure. Uh, Understand that this, from a builder's association standpoint, is going to feel anti-growth because we're no longer rolling out the red carpet. The public's no longer eating all these costs and subsidizing all this development. And I would say from a strong town standpoint, becoming insolvent and going broke. Um, but from a community standpoint, uh, this is the, the only strategy that makes sense uh, financially. These are, these are both, these are all bad development strategies, by the way. I mean, Anyone who thinks that an American city outside of Manhattan, right? Let's take Manhattan off. Anybody who thinks an American city out of Manhattan does, is out of land needs to just get out of their darn car and walk around. And I mean, we have bizarre amounts of land available in the heart of every city, let alone the outskirts. Let's talk about that because that's one of the first things that popped into my mind when reading this article was like, what are you talking about? There's vacant lots in my neighborhood. There's thousands of vacant lots in my city. And that's just my city. There's cities across the country with tons of vacant vacant area. And that's not even counting all of the parking lots that could be developed. Um, and all of the other just, frankly, unproductive uses that are not worth caring about, Enormous. not worth sustaining. Yeah. I mean, it's Astounding. like- there's so much housing. There's there's more housing that than that could be built in those spaces than we would probably ever need, honestly. <laughs> so you know that's that's I think a major consideration that this article doesn't even touch on. This article is very much, I think, geared towards like greenfield development, development on the edge of cities. Hey, these are the these are the wish list item we need to unlock the the development capacity that home builders essentially are looking for you know on the other side of that i think so there's an angle where we can kind of say that you know there's all this urban land and it's served by infrastructure which is true but to an extent 
because the other side of that coin is that a lot of urban neighborhoods have experienced a level of public disinvestment where the cost of updating all of the infrastructure in order to support development is like enormous. It's, I mean, it's different from greenfield development where you can dig up some dirt, put in pipes, build a street. It's like you need to dig up, you know, blocks of city, existing city streets, put in brand new sewers, and then rebuild the street on top of that. And when you're in neighborhoods that have been disinvested in for a long time and have all of these vacant lots, the you know, oftentimes it's like the first developer that comes in needs to, you know, front the cost. And so cities often put that on the private sector to start getting things upgraded with the idea that, you know, the developers will be able to do that. And so that's kind of one of the things I was thinking about is that, you know, there is this cost in some instances to actually starting to reutilize this land because there's been generations of disinvestment. But at the same time, you know, the the way you solve that isn't by uh, building a new highway on the edge of town and unlocking all this capacity just because it's easier to do that. I mean, it's instead of building the new highway off-ramp, why don't we invest that money into the public upgrading? Like that's where our subsidy should be going if it's going anywhere. Let's upgrade all of this aging infrastructure so that people can start filling in all of these missing teeth. Because otherwise, the only way to really get all of this infrastructure upgraded that's been ignored for generations by the city um, is to have like huge apartment mixed use developers come in that can absorb through scale the costs of, you know, upgrading all these things and taking it on. And from an incremental development perspective, you know, I don't know that we want all of our cities to be rebuilt just through giant mixed use apartment buildings that are the size of a block. I think well, we would that doesn't like scale have, either, right? Yeah, I think we'd like to right. have all of these missing teeth filled in, but you can't expect the the private sector to take it on if that's the strategy. Right. Does that well, make sense? I feel yes, and I feel like what you're describing, what what you are explaining here is really that we have a, we we need a different development business model, right? Like we we need a different development model. And let's 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 try to uh, understand the mindset of this author and this article and the way that this news is being reported. If we are uh, 1950s and 60s style track developers out on the edge of town, and that is our business model, forget that that business model is ruinous for society. Forget that that business model bankrupts cities. Forget that this, that, that is our business model. And moving along in that business model, we can't create enough of free available land to continue to do that approach. And so the article concludes that, well, what we need is, you know, you, you did the list, right? We need re- reduced uh, regulation. We need more subsidy, more infrastructure built. We need, you know, uh, this whole list. What, what if what we need is just a different development model, right? What, what if what we need is instead of a development model that moves in these big chunks and wastes 50, 60, 70% of land while slowly squeezing the, the financial capacity out of cities, 
What if instead we had a business model where we went back to existing neighborhoods and said, how do we make better use of this stuff we've already built? And you say, well, Chuck, that, that's great. That's great in theory, but what does that look like? Well, it doesn't look like one or two large developers. It doesn't look like one speculator holding on to a bunch of property waiting for the big payday. What it looks like is a bunch of incremental developers working block after block after block, neighborhood after neighborhood, working with the people there, finding out who's ready to sell, who's ready to downgrade, who's ready to convert their place to a duplex. Where can I add an ADU? What place can I redevelop into a quad unit? How do I take this parking lot that's being underutilized and put a corner business in there and then add some apartment around it? It's a thousand people doing that instead of four or five developers doing big projects out on the edge. And that's a different business model. It is still a market-based model. It is still a capitalist system model. It's still a model that needs investment, is going to result in mortgages and commercial real estate. It's still a model that will work within our system. It's just not one that bankrupts us all and uh, you know, and is, is a dead end. I, th- I think the productivity of the development pattern is all the more reason to be you know, on the public side, investing and unlocking the capacity of existing lots and blocks that may need some level of investment to, you know, be able to build new houses on, but are going to be a much better bang for your buck in the long run and produce a public return on investment. Because the more we just kind of spread out, spread out, spread out and front the costs of all of this infrastructure and then take on the long-term costs of the infrastructure that's a bad investment. That's a bad use of public subsidy. If we can instead move that subsidy into unlocking development capacity that actually is productive for the city, that's going to make the city wealthier. It's going to increase the budget over time. It's going to allow the city to invest in itself. And so I think that's critically important. And by further incentivizing kind of development on the edge and sprawl development that that creates that impacts land values in existing neighborhoods i mean i think if we're going to talk about land values and how how these dynamics impact that i mean it's like you're 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 basically you know creating a, a fake market out on the edge of town where people could be competing for vacant lots in the city and actually rebuilding so those dynamics are just, you know, really terrible and really bad for existing neighborhoods. Can can I give you one little dirty secret as an engineer that is never part of this conversation? Because because you 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 made the comment earlier, if we're going to subsidize something, we should subsidize the rebuilding of infrastructure in core neighborhoods. And it's interesting because I think I'm sure like some of our audience heard that and said, well, how hypocritical. You're just choosing the infrastructure that you like better than the other infrastructure. Um, you know, I thought you guys were against subsidies, yada, yada. Let me, let me draw a distinction, okay? And here's the dirty secret. The infrastructure out on the edge cannot exist and function without the infrastructure in core neighborhoods. In, mo- in almost every city, in almost every city, the sewer treatment plant is near the old neighborhood because it was built there when the old neighborhood was built and the sewer has been extended out from there. So the sewage actually flows through the new pipe, then through the old pipe, then to the treatment facility. The water system goes in reverse. 
you've got your water treatment that pumps into your old historic system. And then from there, it flows into the, the newer system. So if the old system goes bad, the new system goes bad too. If the new system goes bad, it has no impact on the old system at all, right? So prerequisite for development on the edge is competency in the core neighborhoods. That's just a like physical reality of the way infrastructure systems work. But you tie into that the idea that the people living in the core neighborhood paid for that infrastructure and they've been paying their fees and their taxes for years under the idea that when the infrastructure needed to be replaced, someone would go out and replace it. The idea now that the only way we can do that is to bring some big developer in to buy up the whole block, renovate it, and then cash flow the city's shortfall is just a complete abrogation of our civic duty to each other. That, that is like the worst, it's the worst possible predatory outcome of you know, incompetence and a, a bad business model in managing the systems that we as communities, we as municipalities are supposed to be managing. So I'm not like, I'm not jumping up and down going, where do we spend subsidy? Um, but the reality is, you know, with the latest infrastructure bill, uh, we are showing at Strong Towns how it's a super high percentage of it is being used to expand systems. What we said at the time is, if we're going to just blow, like throw money away, don't expand systems, go back and retrofit the ones we have. Yes, so that absolutely. A different business model can start to come to the fore. Right. We we don't need to expand systems. The fact that we have all of this vacant land, all of this underutilized property, neighborhoods that need investment, yeah, we don't need any more infrastructure. We need none. We don't need any more. We need to retrofit and rebuild. And I don't know why that's so difficult for us to do. I I, I really like don't. I've been searching for an analogy here, and I feel like it's ha it's like we have a starving population and we have a food processing plant, and the food processing plant has to work at scale, and it wastes like 80% of the food that comes in, and 20% winds up being used. And the, 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 the Wall Street Journal is saying, but we have all these starving people, and so we need just more food and more processors. And I'm like, no. We need a system that doesn't waste 80% of the input. We need a system that actually creates a better productivity level for the stuff we're putting into it. And that's just a different model, right? When it comes to development, the, the idea that we somehow need more, more subsidy, more expansion, so we can have that next Walmart, that next McDonald's, that next uh, strip mall, that next gas station, that next franchise restaurant, surrounded by the next cul-de-sac subdivision, um, that is such like a limited toolbox of thinking intellectually that when I read it, I'm like, this is not even wrong. It's, this is not even thought through enough to have the wrong idea. This is just, I don't even understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how I felt. I, I felt like it was part that and part like a lobbying piece for just mm -hmm. the Home Builders Association. Yes. So zero out of five stars. Zero out of five journal. stars. <laughs> I feel dumber having read it. Yeah. <laughs> We're so mean. Um. Well, well the funny thing is, is that we do feel mean, right? Because we're Midwestern. I think like uh, 
Yeah, uh, you're right. You know? I need to stop apologizing for, for you know, spitting yeah, the truth. No, I get it. That's what I like <laughs> about you. You are a wholesome, kind, generous person, and you feel guilty for pointing out the reality that this is a stupid article. I get it. Yeah, it's a stupid article. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> um, we'll leave it there. I think that's a good, good conclusion point. But before we finish up today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything we have been watching, reading, listening to, or just general activities that have been taking up our time these days. So Chuck, I'm going to throw it to you. I'm, I'm going to give two quick things. First, my youngest daughter is such a delight and she enjoys watching shows with dad sometimes. And she's 15 now, so like it's hit or miss. But she's been watching Andor, the new Star Wars series with me, and she really likes it. So last night, she's like, Dad, can we go do that? And yep, that's been very nice. And I like it. It's really good. It's, it's a little more edgy in a Star Warsy way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're into that or not, but it's a, it's a good a show. Bit. A little bit. Okay. Um, Barbara Tuckman, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, wrote uh, The Guns of August, which is one of the, the greatest books I've ever read. It's, one of, it's probably the greatest book about the start of World War I. Uh, utterly fascinating. You and I went to the World War I museum mm-hmm. and uh, I was, we were like talking and then all of a sudden there's a crowd gathered around like I'm giving a tour of the museum of some type. I know. Um, you know a lot about World War I and people, <laughs> people seem to – I think people thought maybe you worked there because – People were really interested in what you had to say. Um, Barbara Tuckman wrote like the definitive book on the start of World War One. It's called The Guns of August. It's fascinating. I just had recommended to me another Barbara Tuckman book. It's called The Proud Tower, uh, a portrait of the world before the war. And what it is, is it's a collection of essays that all deal with this time period of like 30 years before World War I. Uh, I am learning so much. I, there was a whole uh, article about, because each chapter is like an essay, an independent essay. Um, one was on the anarchist movement. And I, I know like this much about the anarchist movement. All of a sudden I'm getting like all of this depth. is utterly fascinating. Like this was such an interesting change period of time. Uh, there was an article about basically like the dawn of American imperialism and this idea that we should go and take Hawaii and we should take the Philippines and we should take Cuba because that's what great nations do. And we're now a great nation and we need a naval base and da, 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 da. Um, you can see how this period of time and the, the changes that went about shaped the world we live in today in just profound ways. So yeah, I would recommend it. It's been a very good book, The Proud Tower. Wow, that's really interesting. I wonder if that's one that I could get on my Audible account because I've been doing a lot of listening to books recently. I like that you can speed them up and that you can uh, multitask while listening to them. So I'm I'm going to look into that. Well, I've got a different book I'm reading physically right now. So this one I am doing on Audible. My biggest complaint about Audible is I can't share books with my friends. So I wind up giving my login to people. So you and I will chat. If I give you my login, I have like 2,000 books in my library. Like I have an insane really? number of books. And yeah, yeah. You're my, well, you're like my, one of my best friends. So I'll give you my yeah. login. You can have I will my totally library. use your Audible account. I'm not mm-hmm. kidding. Yeah, that would be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I can save $10 a month. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Yeah, that's cool. my thing. I've been doing Audible for like since it first launched. I mean, like serious. Yeah, you're a longtime user, so you should be able uh-huh. to share your account. Hopefully, it doesn't become a situation like uh, I got kicked off uh, the YouTube TV account recently because I'm not in the like right zip code. Sharing. Yeah, they're uh, starting yeah. to. Well, it wasn't my account. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't I, get, I don't get kicked comedian. off the Disney account, so I'm kind of nervous about it. <laughs> there was a there was a comedian back in 2016. I can't remember who it was, but they were doing Bernie Sanders, and yeah. um, they were trying. The, Bernie Sanders was trying to appeal to millennials by saying we would just have one Netflix account and everybody could share it. The password. The whole country. <laughs> yeah, the whole country. <laughs> <laughs> that was his plan for uh, like, to reduce- you have my vote. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, so maybe that's what we'll wind up with one Audible account, mine that like all Strong Towns members can share. That would be yeah, that'd be super cool. I would like that. Yeah, <laughs> the Strong Towns Audible <laughs> account. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they'll love that. Um, <laughs> okay, well, uh, so for my down zone, I wanted to talk a little bit about this museum. Speaking of museums that opened up nearby my house called the Kansas City Museum. I don't know if you remember Shamari Benton, who was on this show uh, maybe like a year and a half ago, but he was involved in the rehabilitation of this building. And it's basically this big, beautiful old mansion that's kind of tucked away in the middle of a na- of a neighborhood in the Northeast in Kansas City. I'm looking and at the photos right now. Are you? Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. And they renovated the, you know, it's a three-story house and they, the, the entire first floor of the house is basically preserved as it was when people were living in it, which is really, really cool um, with information, you know, about what each room was used for. So that's pretty, that's pretty fascinating. And the basement is kind of like this, this parlor with a bar and kind of an event space. And the second and third floor is all about like Kansas City history and it has all of these different exhibits up there. And it's really fascinating. So next time you come to Kansas City, we will need to see if Shamari can give us a tour of that space. Um, And out on the lawn, they have been doing concerts on the weekends. And so it's this, you know, big marble, you know, facade and and they have these bands that set up in this giant lawn and people come out and set up blankets and then in chairs underneath the these huge mature trees that are out on that lawn. Um and it's just it's amazing. It's it's become like an, an incredible neighborhood gem that this I'm is so excited house. to be nearby. Yeah. Yeah, it's nearby. Um it's on the other side of the highway from where I'm from. But you can get there by a trail, so there's a connection if you want to bike over there or take a you know motorbike or something. So yeah, it's not too not too far. It's something that I think is still kind of a secret in Kansas City. It it really just reopened, but it's like amazing. Anybody who visits, I recommend that they they go to the Kansas City Museum because it is incredible. Well, here's the one thing that I've recognized about people from Kansas City. They are humble and they are Midwestern, so they're kind of underspoken, right? They recoil from saying a Wall Street Journal article is dumb, um, and I respect them for that. But they're also very proud of their place, and they take a lot of celebration in 
things like this. So it's very cool. Um, I'm looking right now and I'm looking at it and I can see like the love this thing is getting from people around there. So what a nice, what a nice deal. Yeah. We'll it's amazing. We'll go. Yeah. Next time. We'll, we have a lot of places that, that we'll need to go. Uh, next time oh, we have a lot of places then. when you come up here to visit that we have to go. I to. know. I know. I was actually, you're going to be mad, but I was just talking to Joe about at some <laughs> point he was saying, we need to go visit Asheville. I'm like, are you going to be a real oh, estate like, agent just like Chuck? Yeah. You're <laughs> like, yeah, people. Joe, I'll go to Asheville. I'm not necessarily going to go to Brainerd, but I'll go to Asheville. It's okay. We'll get you up here at some point. I, I'm not going to make you tour houses. We need to all go mountain biking because he was just in Bentonville, Arkansas, mountain biking, which I'm really jealous about. I have not been to Bentonville in a little while. so. Well, insiders listening to this uh, will know that we're talking about Joe Minicozzi. Here's the difference. When we go mountain biking here, uh, we live in this glacial outwash. And so a mountain for us is like 20 feet of elevation change. In <laughs> Asheville, they actually have genuine mountains that they bike on. And uh, yeah, it's pretty intense. And Joe's, a, Joe's big into that. So we should do it. I'm sure, I'm sure you would love it. I'm sure you would love going mountain biking <laughs> in Asheville. Sounds yeah, right I'm up sure your alley. Would uh, yes. It would okay. be fun. I would like it. I think it would be fun. I think it it would be worthwhile. Maybe, maybe seeing you one year will be in Asheville. That would be pretty cool. That would be cool. Yeah. Not a bad idea for anyone who might be involved there. Um, Okay. Well, let's leave it there. Uh, Thanks Chuck for joining me today. And thanks everybody for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks Chuck. Thank you. Take care. Let me show you what I'm about to do.